Well, it was about um, two years ago, I, I think, that I, I remember reading a sermon written by a man named Edward Payson. How many of you are familiar with Edward Payson? Nobody's ever heard of him. You ever heard of Edward Payson? Maybe his, uh, was it his granddaughter? Was Elizabeth Prentice? His daughter, Elizabeth Prentice. Some of you heard of her name? Okay, maybe she, she pops up. I, I read a sermon that he, he wrote. Uh, he lived in the 1800s, and um, it really helped me bring into my mind, for some reason, I'm not sure why, it really helped me to bring in my mind just a clarity about God and His Word and what it is that we should believe. His sermon was entitled, God's Ways Are Above Men's. His text was Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, where God says, Your thoughts are not my thoughts, nor are your ways my ways sermon made such an impact on my life that I wrote an article about it and put it in the church newsletter. Uh, I posted the sermon to the internet, where if you want to go, you can read it today to rockvalleybiblechurch.org. Um, I have some very real thoughts about wanting maybe someday to write a book about that sermon. Um, <clears throat> just letting that sermon shape some of the chapters of a book to write. But those are, those are some dreams far away. But that's the kind of impact that I think this sermon made on me because it, it really brought some things to clarity. And, and the premise of his sermon is really simple. He said this, he said, God is so far above us and so far beyond us in many ways, and in fact in almost every way, that He's done things in this world that may not clearly be understood by us, but we need to accept them. In other words, the ways of God are different than our ways. Rather than fighting it, let's just trust it. In the sermon, he gave eight proofs of this fact by demonstrating that God created a universe that's much different than we should create it if we were God. Okay, so imagine yourself being God, sort of blasphemous, but imagine yourself being a creator of a world. We do create art things, you know, we do create houses. Imagine yourself, though, creating a world. How is it that you would create it? And I think that there are many ways in which God has created our world which are different than the ways you would create your world. Like, for instance, the existence of evil. And, and I'm just going to go through the eight points that Edward Payson brings up that are worthy of us to think about. The existence of evil. When our wisdom looks at the existence of evil, it, it immediately draws into our minds a question. We either question God's sovereignty or we question His goodness, don't we? I mean, in fact, throughout the history of the world, atheistic philosophers have always been quick to say, surely a good God wouldn't create a world where evil was there, would He? And then they begin to say, well, maybe God's not good. Maybe He's got some evil in Him. And we say, no, that can't be the case. They say, well, maybe God's not all-powerful. He wanted a perfectly good universe, but He couldn't do that. And we say, no, that's not the case. Since those can't be the case, therefore God can't exist, atheist philosophers say. But, but look at what they're doing. They're exalting their reasoning above what they see. But it might just be that God's ways are not our ways and that His thoughts are not our thoughts and that He created a world according to His plan that is that way. And what, what are we called to do? We can't understand. We just accept it and believe it. <clears throat> what about this? Adam is our covenantal head. Our world, especially in America, is focused on individual responsibility. Each of us focused on our own sins, right? 
It doesn't matter what our parents did. It doesn't matter what our great-grandfather did. It doesn't matter what our sister did. It just matters what we did. And we should be punished only for what we did. In the Scriptures, though, it's very clear that He considers every man or woman alive today to be responsible for Adam's sin. You can read Romans chapter 5. And when Adam sinned, all of us sinned with him. And in Adam's sin, we all become guilty as if we sinned because we sinned in Adam. Now, Americans hate that. And that's not our ways. But that's God's ways. And that's the way God created the world. How about this? Salvation for men alone and not angels. In our wisdom, we love to give people a second chance When we see someone mess up, we often think that they deserve a second chance. Especially true when this comes to our mind when saving people from the punishment of hell. Until the moment they die, we we want to give people a second chance or a third chance or a fifth chance or a tenth chance or a, a thousandth chance. And you know what? God does that with us. But with the angels, they had one shot at it. And and the wicked angels who fell fell forever, and they have no opportunity to embrace salvation in Christ. They will forever be damned because of their first sin. Now, would you create a world like that without second chances for angels? I know I wouldn't, but it might just be that God's ways aren't our ways. Payson continued with his fourth point. He said, how about the way of providing a Redeemer? I know if I would have created a world Adam and Eve sinned, I would have said, oh, you sinned and you messed up. Here's a Redeemer right now. But what did God do? He merely promised there will be a day when a Redeemer comes. And He waited more than 40 generations until He sent that Redeemer. I mean, when I have good news, I want to tell it. But God waited 40 years until the arrival of Christ. And if I was going to bring a Redeemer, I'd bring Him in pomp and circumstance and glory. And here He comes! And how did God bring a Redeemer? Born of a virgin, born under the law, in a lowly stable in Bethlehem. Obscure village. That's how God brought a Redeemer. It's not the way I would have done it, but His ways are higher than my ways. Yeah, accept it. How about this? The messengers of the Gospel... Our wisdom naturally thinks the best way to propagate the faith is to find someone who's big and famous and trustworthy, right? Maybe some celebrity who comes to Christ. Put him up in front of people so that he can tell everybody of what he, and they like him so they like his God. But that's not what God does. God chooses the weak and foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He doesn't choose the strong, but he chooses the weak and the base and the despised to share the gospel and to spread his message. There's a purpose for that. It's so that no one would boast in men, but that people would boast in God. I'm not sure I'd do it that way. Also, how about this one? Every patient says, God's ways are not our ways in the fact that few will be saved. In our wisdom, we like to picture most of the people alive in heaven someday with God. Just go to a funeral or talk to anybody who who's, has a relative who dies, especially even non-Christians. What do they always say? Well, he's in a better place. Well, better. There, in our wisdom, in man's wisdom, it's just everybody goes there. Oh, oh, we might create a world with a hell, but only for the worst few of sinners. But Jesus said, many will seek to enter and will not be able. There are only a few that will be saved. Oh, to be sure, there's going to be a multitudes in heaven. But Jesus said, it's few that are saved and the many that are damned. 
God created a world in which more will be damned than will be saved. I wouldn't create a world like that. But you know what? His ways are above our ways. Uh, a seventh way <clears throat> that Payson shared that uh, we're saved by grace, not by works. <laughs> I know in our wisdom, we think that someone can earn their salvation. I mean, it's easily proved. If you would ask anybody off the street, uh, are you going to go to heaven? What do they say? Yeah. You say, why? <laughs> and nine times out of ten, they say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Everybody thinks they get to heaven by their works. And, and maybe we would create a world like that. We create, And those that are the best, boy, we bring those into heaven. But God creates a world totally different than that. The wisdom of God, he says, by grace alone, apart from works, there's nothing we can ever do to merit our standing before God. It's only grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, plus nothing we do. The songs today fit that perfectly. Just as I am, I come. I'm not waiting just to remove even one little blot. I'm coming just as I I am, by grace. That's how God created the world. His ways are higher than our ways. I don't think we'd do that. How about this sanctification? God slowly sanctifies us. I mean, have you ever thought about this? When God saves an individual, He doesn't just purify them instantly. That's His ultimate goal, is to bring people to Himself, clothed with righteous bodies, holy, pure, engaging Him in worship in heaven. But if, if God wants holy people, why does He delay the process? And if I was... Uh, if I was God, someone came to be saved, boom, sanctified instantly, brought into His presence, worshiping right there, instant gratification. But God says, no, 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 no. It's going to be slow and painful and it is going to be difficult. In fact, it was so difficult that Paul cried out, who will set me free from the body of this death? Well, there will be a day when believers in Him will be pure, but it's a long, slow, arduous process to get there. Now, if I create a world, I don't, I don't think I would do it that way. Now, this list that Edward Payson brought up in this message is far from exhaustive. I mean, we could add to this list lots of things. Like, for instance, what about the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation? Romans chapter 9, it doesn't depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but it depends only upon God who has mercy. You know what? I think that's something you should just accept and just say His ways are higher than my ways. I wouldn't do it that way, but that's the way God did it. Or, or how about God's delay in final judgment? If He can't withstand evil, why does He withstand it even a day? God's ways are higher than our ways. Well, what about this? What about the veiling of future events? You know, eschatology is a very difficult study. It's just hard. And I think God has particularly made it hard. If He wants us to know the future, why isn't it clearer than it is? His ways are above our ways. Or how about historical revelation to only one nation? Think about for thousands of years, God focused His revelation on this one tiny little country, Israel. And salvation came from that country, but spilled over But for thousands of years, the vast majority of humanity was in darkness, not even hardly knowing about the Jews. But God's ways are above our ways. The plain fact is that we live in a world that God created. It's not the world we created. And we are called to submit to the Lord in all things. God determined how it it would function. And we're not to call into question how it functions. Rather, we are to call to worship the one 
that we can't fully understand. And I think maybe one, one reason why I like this sermon so much that Edward Payson preached is because it takes God and puts Him way up high and all I can do is adore Him for the way that He's created the world and His infinite wisdom. Well, my message this morning is entitled, Don't Forget His Ways. Don't forget His ways. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. So we've been going through Malachi. We are coming near the end of of chapter 3. And we come here in chapter 3, verse 13 through 15 to a people that didn't understand the ways of God. They just didn't understand it. Their actions demonstrated they didn't understand His ways. Their words demonstrated they didn't know His ways. And rather than submitting Himself to God's ways, instead they rebelled against Him seeking their own ways as well. And I just say, church body, it is important for us to know God's ways. It's important for us to know the ways of God and to gladly accept them and embrace them and rejoice in them because all His ways are best. Well, here it is. Chapter 3, verse 3. We're going to get through three verses today. Your words have been arrogant against Me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God and what profit is it that we have kept His charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. We're going to see three ways in which Israel didn't remember the ways of God. They should have remembered these ways. They were revealed in Scripture. They had the Bible. But for some reason, they had forgotten the ways of God. And and I just say my aim today is that may we at Rock Valley Bible Church not forget these ways of God. The first thing they missed, they forgot, comes in verse 13. I'm just saying this, that He lifts the lowly. God lifts the lowly. The biblical principle here comes from 1 Peter 5, verse 5. God's opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Right? It's those that are low that He lifts high. And I'm not sure that we would make a world like that. We like the high and exalted. Right? I mean, we rejoice, sports fans, in the, um, you know, the football player who makes the tackle and then brings both to himself. That's just how we are wired in many ways. But that God lifts the lowly. In verse 13, we see them being proud. Because they want to be blessed by God. They want to be, but they're not taking God's path to blessing. They're taking the path to cursing. God says, your words have been arrogant against me. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? They've been arrogant words. You know, one of the things that I do from time to time as a pastor is confront people in their sin. It is, um, it's a task that I don't enjoy doing. Um, in fact, often when I know it's coming up, I lose sleep about it. I lo- often lose my appetite about it. And I, I, I always pray earnestly. I do it with gentleness and humility, looking to my own self, seeking to restore But I've noticed when people are confronted, they can respond in one of two ways. Either they listen carefully to what I say, prayerfully consider what's spoken to them. I consider it the humble response. Or they'll respond defensively, denying what I tell them, denying they've sinned in any way. And I just tell you, when people respond humbly, 
I know the blessing of God will be upon their lives. Because it's the way that God works. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Luke 14.11 And I just know that God lifts the lowly. But when people respond defensively, it's often an indication of a proud heart that's lurking beneath the surface someplace. Right? When you bring a word of correction to the attention of a proud person, their first response is to deny it. No, that's not true. And then they become defensive and tell you every reason why. I know that because I've responded that way many, many, many times before. And we see those in Malachi doing the same thing. In fact, that's how the book of Malachi is structured. It's structured on statements the Lord makes to the people of Israel. And in every instance, Israel responds with a defensive statement of denial. They deny what the Lord says. They demand proof. It's an indication of their pride, right? Look back in chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But they, I think you can read some some emotion into this. (laughs) How have you loved us? Denying God's love for them. Saying, prove it to me now. And even after God affirmed His love for them, they demonstrated they didn't believe God wanted him to prove it. I think these words here in verse 2 are almost spoken defiantly. And then God shows how he's demonstrated his love by sustaining them, but destroying Esau. Or chapter 1, verse 6, same kind of thing. God says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my respect? Here the Lord was confronting the priests of Israel about how they were dishonoring the Lord. <laughs> And they respond defensively. Look what they say. He says, How have we despised your name? We haven't, Lord. And then God says, Proof, exhibit A. You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, How have we defiled you? Arrogant responses to the Lord who's confronting them in their sin. Their defiance continues on. Chapter 2, verse 17. Well, we see in 2 verse 13. God says, This is another thing you do. You cover the altar with tears, with weeping and with groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And you'd say, Why? Rather than saying, Oh, He doesn't. Right? Rather than in contrition. you say, Why? For what reason? He just told them He's going to tell them about how unfaithful they were in their covenants. And then verse 17 comes and says, You've wearied the Lord with your words. And yet, rather than Humbling themselves, the arrogant words come from their mouths. How have we wearied him? We haven't. Prove it. Well, for two chapters, he'd already proved it. He had already said that they failed to believe that he loved them. They're offering faulty sacrifices upon his altar. They'd failed in their commitments with one another. They'd been warned repeatedly, like chapter 2, verse 15, chapter 2, verse 16, to reform their ways. They doubted the justice of God, chapter 2, verse 17. And yet in their pride, they refused to acknowledge the ways in which they're wearying God. Doesn't someone weary you, right? Parents with children. Children, you can, you can learn this, okay? Don't, don't do this. But if you just ask your parents, why? 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 Parents, isn't that wearying to you? Why? And you have this discussion. Kids, you can always get a response from your parents if you say, why? Why? And that's what they're doing here. How have you loved us? Why have you? How have we done this? How have we put these uh, defiled sacrifices in your sight? How have we dealt treacherously with the other? How, how have we worried you? It's like, hello? 
It's arrogance. It's a pride. Chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord made this incredible promise of grace and kindness. Return to me and I'll return to you. But they say, how shall we return? I think that they firmly believe that they'd never left the Lord in the first place. How can you return to something you've never left? I think is what their argument was. It's as if all of the Lord's corrections have fallen on deaf ears. How shall we return? Well, believe in my love. How shall we return? Well, offer up right sacrifices. How shall we um, return? Well, deal appropriately with your within the covenant community. How shall we return? Don't, stop wearying the Lord. How shall we return? Stop questioning the God of justice. Right? But they said, how shall we return? Like, we're righteous. Chapter 3, verse 8, the Lord says, you're stealing from me. Yet they say, how have we robbed you? So God tells them how it is that they've been robbing God. But I think when they said, how have we been robbing you, God? I think it's arrogant, defiant words. And throughout the book of Malachi, we see their defiant, arrogant words. They're always denying what the Lord is saying about them. And that's the ground of accusation that comes here in verse 13. And had Israel remembered the ways of God, perhaps they wouldn't have responded so arrogantly to all the accusations the Lord brought upon them. It's not like they didn't know this about God. Those in Malachi's day knew this. Um, You read Ezra and Nehemiah, and Nehemiah chapter 8, all the people are back in the land, the temple is built, they're all happy, and they erect this wooden podium, and Nehemiah stands up, teaches in the Bible all day long. Ezra does, I think. And Ezra taught the people of everything in the Scriptures. And, and Proverbs 18, verse 12 was part of those Scriptures they had. And that says, Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, but humility comes goes before honor. You know, I, I think about that in my life this week. Many of you know that um, I had a little accident this week. How I many you know my accident? Right, many of you do. Uh, you know, I... Maybe I'll tell the story here a little bit again. I, I took my son, and is Daniel here? Yeah, okay. I'm going to ask you a little question later what those guys said. Because I was, I was up, and um, my, I, I took Daniel and SR out skateboarding to the McChesney Park skateboarding place, and um, I said, no, I'm not going to skateboard first, but I started getting cold. Now, I had a jacket on, but maybe I should have brought a bigger jacket, right? <laughs> and I started getting cold, and I saw these guys going. I said, well, I guess I'll try, and I was doing really well. And I was going up and down that half pipe like I've never done it before. I was doing, I was doing really well. And you know what? I think I was pretty proud. And uh, then uh, the last turn, I, I went down and, uh, you know, kind of my wheel caught. And I felt my feet were about four feet high in the air. And I smashed on the concrete. And I, I thought I broke my face. I thought I broke my, my facial. I mean, I, I hit really hard. And it took me about a minute to... To come, come to, and just to show you how dramatic the accident is, Daniel, what, you were standing by some guys who saw it. What did they say? Do you remember? And you said they said some words that probably you couldn't repeat here. Is that right? <laughs> they said it was, it was. But you know, I, I was prideful at that point. But that's a perfect picture of pride coming before destruction. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, right? The, the I'm sure the people knew about how God lifts the lowly and brings down the proud Nebuchadnezzar. These people knew. They'd been taught the Scriptures. They knew about how Daniel told about the, the, the coming destruction. And yet, what did he do? He continued to lift himself up in his pride and said, Is not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal resident by the might of my power and by my glory and my majesty? 
And you remember what happened to him. He was destroyed. He went out to be among the beasts of the field. The people of Malachi's day knew that. They knew the ways of God, but they had forgotten the ways of God. Rather than being humble, they were arrogant. As a result, God's curse was upon them. Rather than lifting them up, God was going to resist them and suppress them. If they were seeking the blessing of God upon their lives, I believe they were, they were doing it the wrong way. And in God's economy, they would be brought low. After six episodes of prideful responses, the Lord confronts them. You've been arrogant against me. And they failed the test right away and they continued in their arrogance. Oh, we've been spoken against you. Now, if you, if you step back and now think about this response for any period of time, it, it might cause your bones to shake. See, it's one thing to be confronted by your sin by another human being who's sinful and might be wrong. That's another thing, though, to be confronted directly by Almighty God with your sin. It's another thing when the sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-pure God of the universe comes to confront you in your sin. And when God's pointing out sin in your life, it's not the time to be arrogant. It's a time to be humble. It's a time to confess your sins. And Israel here was dealing with the words of the Lord. God Himself confronting Israel in their sin and they were responding wrongly. Responding arrogantly. Why? Because they'd forgotten the ways of the Lord. Isaiah gives us some of the clearest words as to how we ought to respond to the word of the Lord. Isaiah 66, verse 2, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. Now when Isaiah says that God will look upon these people who are humble, contrite of spirit, and tremble at his word, he's not just saying, I will see those people. Because God is is omnipresent. There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4.13 Rather, what it says, it says when God is looking, He's looking with favor upon these type of people. He looks down from, from heaven above today and to this one I look, He says, to Him who is humble, contrite of spirit, and trembles at My word. God looks with favor upon those whose who are broken in their spirits, who shake in holy reverence when they hear the Word of God. Have you ever had the Bible open only to read a portion of Scripture and then have it hit you? And have you shake? Like, whoa, this is, this is right. I better be careful here. You ever done that before? I was studying this passage and then yesterday my son, SR, comes into my office. And based upon something I had just done before, he came and confronted me and said, Dad, the Bible says this, but you did this. How are you going to respond when your children come and use the Scripture to confront you of sin? You can explain it away. Or are you going to humbly confess your sin where you're wrong and seek and plead the Lord's help? Right? We spent probably about five, ten minutes I started talking about that passage, didn't we? And we just really need to pray. See, God looks upon those who tremble at His Word. It's the path of salvation in Christ that God saves those who see their sin and cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
It's the way of God. He lifts the lowly. The one who, who says, there's nothing in my hands that I bring. It's simply only to the cross, O Lord, that I cling. But the one who stands and boasts of all of his righteousness before God. God, what does he do with that one? He suppresses him. God lifts the lowly. He exalts the proud. And if we had time, we could go through every single one of, of the times in which Israel responded arrogantly and just shown a, a proper response, right? You say, how have... Israel says, chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you. But God says, rather than saying, how have you loved us? Rather than saying, here's a humble response. You've loved us, God. We're, we're struggling to see that. We don't know exactly how. Can you show us, please? That's a humble response. When the Lord says, where's my honor? Where's my respect? Maybe they should have said, Lord, you're right. We have dishonored your name. We've presented the faulty sacrifices. We've despised Your altar. We've defiled Your name. Forgive us. Lord, give us the strength to change our ways. That's the right response. The low response that God will lift up. Or 2 verse 17. You've wearied me. You've wearied Him. Rather than saying, how have we wearied Him? Just say, God, we don't want to be a burden to You. We want to be a joy our sins have mounted high and certainly they have become a burden for You. Forgive us and strengthen us, O Lord, for Your service. Every time they could have humbly responded or arrogantly responded. And they arrogantly responded, I think, because they forgot the ways of God. That God lifts the lowly. Well, let's look at the second way in which they'd forgotten the ways of God. second way is this. <clears throat> he weighs the heart. I know I have my notes there. He sees the heart. But he weighs the heart is better because that's the language of Proverbs 21, verse 2. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And we see that in verse 14. <clears throat> Clearly, Israel thought and believed that they were totally in the right. But the Lord weighs the heart. Verse 14, they said, It is vain to serve God. And what profit is there that we have kept His charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? They said, Lord, we have kept Your charge. You told us what to do and we did it. We have suffered for Your sake. We have walked in mourning. Right? We have this, this humble attitude before You. <laughs> and yet, they were they were experiencing some very difficult things in their life. They were facing hardship and difficulty. I think they were discouraged, which led them to the conclusion that said, it is vain to serve God. Why? Because because their ways were right in their own eyes. Every man's way is right in his own eyes. They thought, right, we'd kept your charge, God. And what did we get from it? We didn't get anything. It's vain to serve you. It's vain to keep your charge. And they could have said, Lord, look at all the things we've done. We have returned from Babylon where at least we had a house to live in. Now we're living in this tent. Look at the sacrifice we've done for you because our house isn't built yet. We've labored to build the temple and it's hard work with stones and mortar. We've labored to build the wall. We've labored to restore worship back into your city. We're bringing lambs and sheep under your altar to be offered. We are worshiping in accordance with the law. We're giving of our financial resources to support the temple. And what do we get? Nothing. N-O-T-H-I-N-G, God. It is vain to serve you. 
they're saying. Because they weren't being blessed, they concluded it was vain to serve the Lord. Well, you know, their problem was they forgot the ways of God. Service to the Lord is more than simply going through the motions. They may well have sacrificed much in returning from Babylon. That's well and good. They may well have sacrificed much in building the temple and the wall, put in much labor, work night and day. They were certainly bringing animals to be sacrificed on the altar. They were certainly contributing financially to the operations of the temple, doing many good things. Listen, but in everything that we know about those in Malachi's day, they were hardly serving the Lord with a clean heart, right? It wasn't a pure heart that they were doing all these things with. Their sacrifices were substandard. Chapter 1, verse 8. Blind, lame, and sick sacrifices. Dealing treacherously with one another. Chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 14. Unfaithful in their marriages. Chapter 3, verse 10. They weren't bringing the whole tithe into the storehouse. They were half-heartedly doing it. We see from our last point, they were proud and arrogant. In reality, these people were hypocrites claiming on the outside, look at all the good we have, but on the inside, there were many wrongs which fleshed itself out in many different ways. And being disobedient to the Lord on several accounts, they claimed to have kept His charge. In reality, though, they'd failed to do so because God saw their hearts and exposed it in several ways, but they maintained their purity. Because again, Proverbs 21, verse 2, says, every man's way is right in his own eyes. The Lord weighs the heart. And, and, and now think about it again. Let's step back from this. And, and you realize what they were doing here is really horrifying. Not only were they hypocrites, but in their hypocrisy, they sought to bring God's name down and rub it in the dust. In other words, they tried to place all the blame on God for the woes. Look at how righteous we are in God. It is vain to serve you as if, God, you are not worthy to be served. I think we might as well serve Baal. right? Lifting other gods up and above their God. They brought Him down. Said, you're just a peon God. That's what they're saying. You know, Psalm 34, verse 3 is a great psalm. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. Right? That's a call to the congregation to magnify the Lord and exalt His name together. But with these words, they were singing, Oh, belittle the Lord with me and let us complain about His name to everybody. Though they were seeking a blessing from the Lord, they'd received nothing but a curse from their actions. And fundamentally, the, the issue there is that it has to do with their hearts. They were hypocritical. It's not what the Lord sees on the outside that makes so much a big difference. Lots of people can put a show, put on a big show of religion. <clears throat> and there, I, there are many things that people in Malachi's day were doing right. There are many things they were doing right. Just like there are many things that many people today in our culture do right. You know, their church attendance is perfect. You know, they say the right things. They keep their language there. And lots of people can persuade their own hearts that things are well with their soul, but ultimately the Lord detects their heart and, and exposes it, and that's what makes a difference because the Lord weighs the heart. First Samuel sixteen seven says the Lord looks at the out man looks at the outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, that's what was wrong with the Pharisees. They thought that only the externals mattered. But God's ways are not our ways, God weighs the heart. And God was clearly able to see the wrong hearted approach these Israelites were taking. 
You know, now we may be inclined to see partial obedience and commend the good. Even, even with others. Oh, well, you know, they're trying. They say, well, these people are trying. Could have said that. <laughs> but the Lord sees perfectly what's going on and He will act appropriately. Church family, I just say the application comes directly to us. In the things that you do for God, make sure that you have a heart that is pure in doing what you're doing. Check your heart. Because that's their problem. They had a heart that was all wrong. And when they suffered hardship then, they said, ah, it's vain because what I'm getting, I'm getting hardship. Well, they had a wrong heart to begin with. When Jesus condemned the Pharisees, He quoted from Isaiah who said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me. See, the Lord weighs the hearts. And I just say this, where the heart is willing, the feet are swift. The willing heart will present the unblemished sacrifice. The willing heart will keep the promises. The willing heart will give generously. And the willing heart will manifest itself in all ways. And then when sin comes about, the willing heart will be the humble heart as well. But these people in Malachi's day might claim it's vain to serve God. We can say with confidence it's not true. Don't believe it. 1 Corinthians 15.58 Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Your toil is not in vain in the Lord. When Paul wrote those words, he's writing to the tired and weary Corinthians. They were weary. They were tired. And he says, no, keep going. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Oh, there might be times when it appears to be in vain. Think about Joseph. When he was in prison, he may have said, boy, this isn't... I'm in vain here. My service for the Lord. Daniel may have felt his service to the Lord was in vain. He'd thrown to the lions. Why? Because he had his quiet time every day like he always had before. Maybe not his quiet time. It was a loud time. He was praying. Peter may have been tempted to think that his labor was in vain when his preaching landed him on death row. Acts 12. Paul may have, and Silas may have tempted to despair when their boldness of proclaiming Christ in Philippi led them to prison. And yet in every single one of their cases, the Lord was faithful and ultimately rewarded their service in His time and in His way. Joseph became ruler in Egypt, saved his family from famine. But it took some 17 years, I think, to get to that point. He rewards in his time. Daniel was saved from the lions and enjoyed success in the reign of Darius while his enemies were eaten by the same lions. Peter was delivered miraculously by an angel while Herod, who put him in prison, was eaten by worms. Paul and Silas were eventually vindicated before all the leaders of Philippi They confessed they'd done this unjust thing and along the way their circumstances led to the conversion of a jailer. Because they knew that the toil wasn't in vain. And if you render service to the Lord which comes from a true heart, the Lord will reward your service. But listen, in His ways and in His time, the promise of Galatians 6 stands strong to us. Verses 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, this he also will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. 
See, God weighs the hearts. And hearts that, that serve Him with a right heart, God will reward in His time. Well, don't forget His ways. Don't forget that God lifts the lowly. That God weighs the heart. And thirdly now, that God delays the judgment. The biblical principle here comes from Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Oh, it may look like they're being unpunished today. But the Scripture says, assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Look at verse 15. So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. And again, we see these Israelites mocking God. The Lord identifies the proud in heart, Proverbs 16.5, as an abomination. And they right here said, no, we call the proud in heart blessed. And with such statements, they were striking at the very heart of God's character. Striking at His justice. God's not fair. He's allowing sin to go unpunished. Striking at God's holiness. God is tolerating sin. Striking at God's omniscience. God doesn't know what's going on. Striking at His omnipotence. God is powerless to punish the workers of iniquity. Now, to be fair to those in Israel, it's what they were observing. They saw people testing God and escaping unpunished. And we know it's wrong to test God. The people there, Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But they saw people testing the Lord and getting away with it. Well, they were getting away in the sense they weren't being punished right now. And this theme has come up here in Malachi several times. And I just say it again and again because we need to hear it. As often as it comes up in Malachi, so we need to hear it. It's a value of exposition, right? God will punish the wicked. The Scripture is clear. Psalm 1.5, The wicked will not stand in the judgment. Oh, it, it may not appear that way right now. But that's only because God delays His judgment. God will punish the wicked. You know, a few weeks ago I talked about Psalm 73 and Asaph. He was distraught because he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw that in life they never suffered. They were in prosperity. In death, they died peacefully. Though they'd sinned, lived sinfully, and though they had spoken against the Lord, they lived and died in ease. You know, and you don't need to look too hard to see that. Maybe you have neighbors that are like that. Just neglect the Lord and yet living at ease. Looking at retirement in Arizona. There are biblical examples of that. You just need to go through the Psalms. You'll find so many Psalms have the, the psalmist just being distressed and God seemingly being silent. It took me but two minutes to find these. Psalm 3, 1 and 2. O oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying in my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. It's almost like, God, where are you? But there will be a day. Psalm 10, 1 and 2. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots what they have devised. They're not being caught right now. But let them be caught, is what he's saying. Listen, there is a day when the wrongs will be made right, and that's what we need to trust in. 
Let's not be like the Israelites of old and call the arrogant blessed. Let us not ever think that people can test God and escape, like verse 15 says. Oh, they may appear to escape, but the judgment will come upon them. It just appears they're escaping. In Malachi, it comes up several other times, chapter 3, verse 5. God says, There'll be a day when I come to you in judgment. I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against these evil, wicked people. It's going to come up again in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 in two weeks. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. The day is coming, will set them ablaze, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Oh, it's coming, but it's not now. And here's the principle. God's ways, God delays His judgment because God's ways really are not our ways. And what really struck me about this passage here is that Israel had fallen the same way they'd fallen before. They'd made the same mistakes over and over and over again. The problem with the people in Malachi's day is that they strayed in their hearts and they didn't know the ways of God. Psalm 95 verse 10 records the errors of the people of Israel in the wilderness. Listen to the the verbiage that God used about these people. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they, these are the people of Moses' day, they always go astray in their heart and they don't know my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Right, they were headed for judgment. Forty years of wandering. Judgment not entering his rest. Well, that's my message this morning. Really, it's the gospel. Do you want to be blessed of God? Then know his ways. No, first of all, he lifts the lowly. God isn't looking for the proud achiever. He's looking for the repentant sinner. He hates grumbling and complaining. But he loves those who seek mercy. So if God lifts the lowly, then be low. God weighs the heart. The promise of Scripture is this. If you seek the Lord with all your heart, you will find Him. Now if you engage with God with a willing, full heart, you'll find Him and know Him. It's the Gospel. No, thirdly, He delays the judgment. As was read, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, today is the day of salvation. Because today is a day of mercy, but the day of judgment is coming. So don't delay the day in which you get low. Come to the Lord with a full heart. Oh, Rock Valley Bible Church, may we not forget His ways. Let's pray to that effect. Oh, Lord, I pray that You would help us to know and to see that You've created a world perhaps that is different than what we might have and expect. I'm thankful for the world that you have created because, as Jake quoted earlier, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. We don't have to be burdened by rules and regulations and laws. We are simply need to turn to Christ. And you simply need to trust Him. Simply need to pray, God, change my heart. Make it ever pure. Revive us. Revive me. Help me. Lord, I am sinful. Be merciful to me. 
Lord, I thank you that those are, are your ways as we as we go to you. I pray that we as Rock Valley Bible Church would never miss these ways. May we be humble people. May we seek the Lord with our whole heart. And may we trust in you that the judgment is coming. Lord, that we not, might not despair, but we would see that our toil in the Lord is not in vain. So help us to know your ways, God, and help us to walk rightly with you. We desperately need you in Jesus' name. Amen.